All right, well, as we continue our <clears throat> series on... As we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, would you open up to Matthew chapter 5? We're going to start... Um, a few weeks here in these statements that Jesus makes. Jesus, after he has declared what the kingdom of God is like, he now, he ends up adjusting it and saying, okay, now I'm going to redefine what your understanding has been. And, and he talks about, we talked about last week, how Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law. As people are hearing these things and hearing them as new teachings, he wants to make it clear, I am not, I have not come to abolish or do away with everything um, that God has said before. But what he is going to do is he's going to reorient them and help them understand how they have misunderstood and misapplied the heart of God's law. And so he says, I've come to fulfill all things. And he says, not only have I not come to abolish any of them, but anyone who lets up on even a little bit, even the least of these will be the least in the kingdom. And so he's, he's adding weight to it. He's not, he's not absolving it. He's not abolishing it. He's not getting rid of it. But he is calling them to something greater. And what's going to follow here are six statements that start with the familiar phrase that many of us, if you grew up in the church, you know how he communicates these six things. You have heard it said, but I say. And so today we're going to just deal with the first two of those of Jesus. What, what does he mean when he says that? What is he actually communicating? So let's, I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Father, this is weighty. These are heavy passages but God, we know that you are with us in it, that we know that you are God and you are good and you are sovereign and you have guarded your word. And we know, Lord, that, that what is broken 
in us in this breaks the interpretation and the understanding. So Lord, give us wisdom. Give us renewed minds. Give us eyes that would see. Give us hearts that would believe and declare the good news that we see here. And Lord, let us not justify ourselves, but let us cling to your justification. Let us not seek to defend ourselves, but let us call out to you as our defender. Lord, let us not seek our own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a significance to the way Jesus introduces these things. So remember, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so now he's going to clarify it. And he's not going to clarify it by going through all of the law and the prophets and go through line by line and everything. But what he is going to do is he's going to pick out some and he's going to confront their understanding and then give them what the heart of God truly is. And what you will hear, if you're listening to this, is you will hear him and you, and you will hear how he's building to eventually when he says, a new law I give, a new command I give to you that you love one another. Or when he says later in Matthew's account here that the great, he talks about the great commandment, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so listen to see if you can hear that in these because all six of these statements have to do with how we interact with one another. And so he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And it's important to understand that he is not challenging the Old Testament, but he is challenging their interpretation of it. This is important. He says, you have heard it said. So what would happen is the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, what they would do is they would take the scripture of God and then they would interpret it. And they would, they would talk about it like we do here. Right? They would interpret it. They would teach it. They would say, like, well, this is, this is what that means. The difference is that what they would say it meant became equal with what God was actually saying. Does that make sense? So they would not just say, they would say, okay, this is what the commandment is. And then they would say, this is what that means, and this is how you should go about obeying it. And then they would hold people to that and say that their interpretation was God's law. So when Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, he's not, like at times he's going to quote things that are in the Old Testament, but what he's doing is he's challenging what they have always come to understand. The Pharisees and the scribes would equate their own words, their own interpretations with God's word. And they would completely, on top of that, miss the heart of what God was saying. They would say, okay, if we're called to worship God, then we want to make sure we obey that commandment. And so they would go out further from that. And they said, well, then that means that we can't, that we, we need to worship God in this particular way. And then that means, well, in this particular way, it needs to look exactly like this. And so they would keep building these fences out from the heart of it. And they would end up missing the heart of what God was actually after. And not only that, but then they would hold people to the righteousness of the own, their own law that they created. So basically what they were doing is they, they created their own law, they interpreted it in such a way, and here's where it gets really dark, they interpreted it in a way that made sense to them, 
and that they could fulfill and then held other people to that standard. It would be like getting a test in school and filling out all the answers and then editing the questions and adjusting them and changing them so that your answers fit the questions and then having the authority to grade everybody else's test based on your edited questions. And they would use that then to oppress people and they would actually end up keeping people from God. This is why Jesus confronts it. In a very important sense, Jesus is saying, look, you've heard it said, but those people who told you that, they don't have that authority. They don't have the authority to speak on God's behalf in that way. But Jesus is declaring that I have the authority, but I say to you, that he is going to say their interpretations, their understandings lead you to this, the, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. But what I am going to say to you exceeds their righteousness. It is the righteousness of the kingdom. So in all these examples, Jesus is going to look at what the exterior thing that they are all concerned about, making sure that their actions look right, and the way they've interpreted it, and the way they understand it, and he is going to dig deeper, and he's going to uncover the heart of what is actually going on. And he's going to say, you're worried about the outside of the cup here, but it's the inside that matters. In all of these examples, Jesus is going to cut to the heart of what matters. So the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees say, just don't murder. But kingdom righteousness exceeds that, and does not have anger towards a brother. And in fact, seeks reconciliation. He's going to say the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is just don't commit adultery, but, but the righteousness of the kingdom is to not even lust after a woman or a man, but to see them as the image of God and to cherish. It's the inside-out kingdom. When Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, later he says this, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So part of what Jesus is doing with these statements and in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, you've been blind, you're missing it. And he doesn't come to abolish it. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what this really means, what the kingdom really looks like. And what he is about to say will enrage many. Because it's what they've always believed. And when I read this and I think about it, I, I, I think, man, some things just never change, do they? Like, it's so easy to look at this and to look at the scribes and the Pharisees and to say, ah, so glad we're past that. Those guys were the worst. And what we often try to point out here is that often in the church, we have far more in common with the Pharisees than we do with the people that Jesus is reaching out to. See, we aren't so different from the Pharisees because this is what happens to the religious heart. We, we create our own interpretation of Scripture. We have our own interpretation of Scripture and then we equate it. We give it the same weight as the actual words of God. I know we do this because some of the biggest criticisms I have gotten after a sermon have been when I've quoted Jesus. 
That should say something, that we, that we, we equate, we, we think we've always heard it this way. We often misquote scripture. Do you know how many times I have preached a passage and I'll read it and I'll go, man, I could have swore that was not the word. Like it's just in my head and maybe it's from a different translation or whatever and most of the time it's not a big deal. It doesn't really change the meaning of anything. But there have been times where I'm looking at it and going, wait a second, why have I always read it this way with this tone, with this inflection in my voice? It's because we take our interpretations, our understanding, and we make a law out of it. And so we pick and choose what we like, when we hear something that we like that seems good to us, something that makes sense to us, And lo and behold, if the interpretations that we buy into don't back us up as the most righteous. Lo and behold, if the questions that we kind of shift and make, if our answers to them don't make us the right ones. So we write out our own test and receive our own righteousness. If you don't believe me, ask yourself, why do we get so amped up about cultural issues about sexuality or politics get so riled up but we laugh about our own gossip and division we make light of it why is it that sins that are out there we look at and we say well there's just no excuse for that but internally we say oh you know you're but you're doing the best you can it's not that big of a deal Why do we so clearly see the sins of the culture and ignore our own sin? Why do we we lecture people on how bad debt is and just lament about how much consumer debt there is in our culture and yet we spend just incredibly justify all the money we spend on leisure out of our abundance because it's ours and we can do with it what we want. Like these are the things I wrestle with. It's, it's the reason why we think these things, the reason why we look out there and see like things, well, how could anybody think that? How could anybody do that? How could you possibly live that way? But things that Jesus is saying to us that conflict in our own heart, we're like, yeah, but that's what the, this is kind of what that means. And yeah, I mean, nobody, he can't really be meaning this. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. And these passages are going to push on us. We cultivate an interpretation that puts us in the higher seat, and then we judge anyone who challenges that interpretation. And by the way, the religious used to corner the market on this. Like self-righteousness used to be like, like the prime export of American Christianity in a lot of ways. But let me just tell you, today it is equal opportunity across all worldviews, Right? Like, self-righteousness is not limited at all to the religious. I mean, humanists, secularists, like, we all create a law of, like, how you are supposed to live, which, by the way, I just happen to pass, and then I hold other people to that same standard and condemn them. But Jesus confronts it. He is authoritative. We are not. He defines terms. We do not. And what we are about to read and what we're going to go through in the next couple of weeks will press on us. I can tell you as I have frantically been like wrestling with these passages to say, man, this just 
presses on us. And we have two ditches that we can fall into. One is to believe like the Pharisees did and like the people listening did that what we have always believed is right. If you want to miss what God is saying to you through the Sermon on the Mount, whenever you read it or when you listen to these sermons, then one ditch you can fall into is just be rock solid in that what you have always believed is right. Because that's what you've heard since you were a child. That's what you've always understood. That's how you've always interpreted that and understood that. That is what Jesus is confronting. You have heard it said. I've heard many people say to me, yeah, well, you know, that's what my pastor said growing up. That's how he preached it. And I've had to literally say, but Jesus says this. Well, yeah, but I think this is what he meant. So that's one ditch. The other ditch you can fall into is to believe that what we have always believed is wrong. So you can fall in the ditch of saying, like, what I have always been taught and what I've always believed is, is, is right, and I'm not going to listen to Jesus through that. Or you can believe what we've always believed is wrong. And so I'm going to always try to find a new understanding, a new interpretation, a new way of looking at this, a new angle, so that I can justify these things that I want to justify, so that I can live the way that I want to live, and so I can redefine what Jesus says. And Jesus is refuting both of those. He says, you have heard it said, confronting what they always heard. But he doesn't say, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but hey, don't worry about what, you, what they've always said. They don't know what they're talking about anyway. Go do what you want. He doesn't say that. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you this. It's not less authority. It's greater authority. Right? He's not limiting or abolishing or doing away with. He's fulfilling and deepening. So what follows is the authority of Jesus speaking the heart of God. It's a crossroads. I just want to lay that out for you, for me, for everyone. If, if what you want is the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, then go ahead and, and manipulate definitions. Edit the test. Justify yourself. But if you want the righteousness of the kingdom, then come to the king. It's not just about avoiding bad things that we're going to see. It's about being free then to love people, to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, think about this. If I said to you, you know what? I've been really loving my neighbor. I really loved my neighbor today. And you said, oh, really? How, what happened? Tell me about that. Oh, I, I didn't murder him. <laughs> you might be like, oh, oh, yeah, no, I totally didn't murder him. You know what's even better about that is I wanted to totally wanted to. That dude's the worst. Hate him. But I didn't. I didn't just like Jesus would have done. Didn't murder him. Like we'd say, what? What are you talking about here? And that sounds ridiculous. And yet I see it all the time. All the time. We justify we actually increase the, the insidiousness of this is that if my heart wants this evil but I don't do it I somehow think that's even more righteous like it's like I get more credit because I wanted to do it and I think if I gave you that example you would say that's not better and so let us look at that as Jesus unearths this 
He's ripping away the curtain. He's clearing out the smoke and mirrors we use to present ourselves as righteous and exposing what is hidden in the darkness. And he is lighting the way of the kingdom. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So he says what everybody knows. You've heard it said, "Do, do not murder. He's not absolving that. He's not eliminating that. But he deepens it. And and just a quick disclaimer here, before we equate murder and anger, um, it's helpful to know that what they would have thought about as murder, what they would have heard in that time, is similar to what we would hear. Okay, so murder is murder. Like we we have different definitions and different delineations about what qualifies as murder, and it was similar then. So when he says, do not, like you've heard it said, do not murder. He's not, he's not talking about like justifiable self-defense or any of that stuff. It's not that those things aren't, don't have some kind of um, like weight or bearing on any of this. And he's not absolving all of their types or anything like that. But what he's referring to is, is murder. Right? And likewise, he's also not talking about all kinds of anger. So whenever anger comes up, I always, always get, well, Jesus was angry, so I can be angry too. And I always want to push back on that because I say, well, we aren't angry about all the same things Jesus is angry about, right? And we're not really angry with the same frequency that Jesus is angry. So one of the things I will often point out when someone uses that with me is saying like, okay, well, how many times do you see Jesus angry in the Gospels? Three-year span, it ranges between two and six times, depending on how you really interpret anger. There's a few times people say, like, well, six times he was angry. But it's like this statement, and I'm like, well, I don't know if I call it anger. Like, he flips over a table. Everyone agrees. That's anger, right? He's, he's angry when he goes nuts and flips over the table and just, like, clears everybody out with, like, cords. and Yeah, anger, for sure. Other times, like, I don't know. But at most, we got, like, five or six times. So if you come to me and you say, I have been angry five times in the last three years. I might say, okay, well, let's talk. Maybe you are only angry like Jesus was angry. But most of us, it's like five times in the last 10 minutes. Right? Like most of us, it's like the, the, bur- the seeds of it is like I saw something. I see, and like, oh, that's, that's happening there. And like, why did they do that like that? And they're like, why, why did that happen? And, and you walk in, and you're like, why didn't someone clear this driveway out better? And why did that person cut me off? And we're just constantly doing that. That is not, that is not righteous anger. And so we need to make sure that we understand that. There is a righteous anger that God has against sin and that Jesus has, which, by the way, is reserved primarily for the religious people who keep people away from God through their own interpretations, through doing the things that we're talking about here. And most of our anger is about how we've been offended or inconvenienced. But there's more to that that we'll get to. Jesus gives a clue as to what kind of anger he is talking about When he adds, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so he's not just saying anger like the way that you might be defining it. He actually starts to define it and give light to it and talks about contempt towards other people. If you insult your brother, well, I didn't really insult him out of anger. If you Say, you fool, if you show contempt, 
toward your brother. And that's most of our anger, if we're honest. The anger that exalts oneself as righteous and lessens the value of the other. And Jesus addresses this in a shocking way. Look how the words he chooses. He says, anyone who murders is liable to judgment. But then what does he say about the one who's angry with his brother? Will be liable to judgment. Well, you just literally took it off. I was right there. You'll be liable to judgment. It's the same phrase. He's saying, you've heard it said that those who, are murdered, who murder are liable to judgment, but those who are angry towards their brother are liable to judgment. The same phrase. And then he goes on, he talks about other forms of judgment for if you have contempt towards your brother. And it would have been shocking to people. And I don't think Jesus is saying there's no difference. Like he's not, he's not, it's not the reverse of it. He says like, well, if you get angry with your brother, you might as well kill him. Because you're already, you're already guilty. That's not what he's getting at at all. He is saying that you, you see your righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees see righteousness as just don't commit murder. But I'm saying to you, there's something deeper. There's a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, don't even be angry at your brothers. He says, don't have contempt towards them. Why? Because it's through anger. He relates these because it's through anger that murder comes into the world starting with Cain and Abel. And Jesus is confronting this deeper issue. And what he's confronting is the scribes and Pharisees. The reason why he says you have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is because the scribes and the Pharisees, their righteousness is like, I, did, I didn't kill anybody today, so I'm righteous. And they think, and they look on judgment with anybody who would even dare to do that, and they don't realize they're not as removed from murder as they think. That they're actually liable to the same judgment as the murderer. So loving your neighbor that Jesus is going to give them means in part not letting anger toward them or resentment toward them take root. And so that brings up the question of like, what do you do then with the anger? It's not just physical acts of violence, but do you let it settle in your heart? Do you see it as justified and good? When you feel anger or contempt towards someone else, do you say, well, I'm not going to act on it, so therefore that's righteous? Or do you look at it and you say, well, I'm right to be angry about that. So you declare yourself righteous. You see it as justified and therefore let it sit because after all, it's good. So I'm just going to let that hang out in there. I'm not going to act on it. I'm not going to do anything, but I'm just going to let it hang out in there. But when you do that, what happens the next time you see that person? Do you feel less angry or does it bring it all up? Have you ever been in a situation where you thought you were over something, you thought it wasn't a big deal, until you saw the person that you had been angry with, and it brings it all up again? That's what we typically do. Like, oh no, this anger's good. This is right. This is like, I, I, I deserve to be angry about this, and so I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna let it hang out here, and I just kind of forget about it. It just sits over here in a dark corner. Yep, it's gone. I don't, I'm like, I'm fine every day. And then you see him at the grocery store, and you're like, oh! And wells up and normally a little stronger than it was before. Because that's what happens to sin. It says, hey, don't mind me. It's not a big deal. I'm just going to hang out over here in a dark corner. Not even gonna, I'm not going to bother you. Just, if you just feed me just a little bit, that'll just keep me quiet. But it grows stronger and stronger. This is why I think when Paul 
says in Ephesians 4, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Because the devil will capitalize on that when we just let anger sit off to the side rather than dealing with it. So don't let it take root. Confront it. Ask for help. Fight against it. But I think there's another angle to this that's really critical for us today. So yes, part of what's being said here is don't let anger towards your brother fester or take root or sit. Deal with it. Confess it. Ask for help. And he's going to deal with being reconciled. But there's another anger angle that is critical for us today. It's not just talking about our own personal actions. He's not just saying, hey, be careful. If you're angry towards someone else, you might end up killing them. He's saying anger is the root of murder. So then when we feed into anger, we become a party or an accomplice to murder. So here's what I mean. Loving your neighbor here in part means not being angry with them, but it also means not participating with them in their anger and in their outrage. Not feeding in to that. Let's be, let's be real for a second. I want you to think of some cultural issue that really drives you crazy. This will be fun. It's a fun exercise, right? Let's have some fun together. All right, just think about it. Don't blurt it out right now, but just think about it. Like something that you've read in the news, it's come up in, in, in politics or in our culture or whatever that just like, just makes you angry. Now, has there ever been anyone that agrees with you that also is angry about that that you look at something they did and say, well, that, that's too far. Like you, you went too far with that. Maybe even committed like an act of violence or, or like said something really harsh or some, said something that you're just like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's that, like, no, no, I, that's too far. I'm off the train. Or at least I'm not going with you there. What's our response when that happens? Do we feel like we contributed to it? Or do we take the, the stance of like, well, I, but I wasn't going to do that, so I don't have any responsibility. I was just expressing my anger. See, not only do we feed our own anger that we kind of hide off to the side, but we feed the anger of others. And as we feed the anger of others, it just keeps escalating. We've had that in our household. I'm not, you know, naming any names, but uh, we, have, we have one who just likes to push I don't know where he gets it from. I really don't. I don't know. I don't know where he gets this. But I used to do that as a kid. I would push and I'd push my brother. I'd just, I would just poke at him, prod at him, like just, and I would always do it quietly and just do all this stuff. And then he'd just flip out. And what's the response of the kid who's doing that? I didn't do anything. I didn't do, I didn't do anything. You're like, well, yeah, you did. You contributed to that. See, if we're gonna love our neighbor then that means that we need to confront anger and contempt when we see it, especially in our brothers and sisters. Especially with those, especially with those who would look to you as a sympathetic ear. I have rightly been told many times here and accused of, man, I just feel like you are just like on us all the time. Like, why are you, why are you picking on, on my point of view? Because I love you. 
Because you would look at me and say like, oh, if, if, if you're going to be sympathetic to it, like that's what our world does. Like I get really angry about it and then I want to righteously self-defend and defend myself in this and then I'm going to go find other people who will also tell me I'm justified in it. And I want them to feed into my anger, but if you love them, you won't. If you love them, you would confront the contempt. Imagine if we didn't feed into the anger of the world. We live in a world that loves to pour gasoline on the fire, and we want it that way. It's how people make money, how they gain status, how they belong to a tribe. But blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. See, Jesus is stressing the seriousness of this, and thus the importance and urgency of reconciliation. He says, do not let anger hang on in your heart. If you've been wronged, would you rather forgive and turn it over to God for justice, or would you rather let anger grow in your heart and destroy you? Do not let it set. Just so you know, on the fly, I am pushing back part of the sermon for next week, so that'll be fun. So we're going to save lust for next week. It'll be its own. I felt like maybe I should give parents a warning anyway, so there's your warning. Next week, we're going to talk about lust. But with this anger here, don't let it grow. Don't let it set. That's why Jesus is saying, if you let up on the least of these, like don't let it take root. Don't justify it. Don't defend it. And by the way, when he, he talks about this, and he turns it and he says, not only do you not let anger grow in your heart, but instead be reconciled to your brother. By the way, side note, we've talked about this before with communion, but this, this passage is not about communion. So I just feel like right now, one of the ways the enemy is getting in here is like with what, some of the beautiful things we are seeing happen in communion, we have brothers and sisters who are missing out on that because they have always heard, you've heard it said, hey, don't come to the table in, in an unworthy manner, which is a quote, but this is what it means to be in an unworthy manner. If you have any sin in you, if you have not been reconciled to your brother, like then you can't come to the table. That is not what Jesus is saying. He's not even talking about communion. He hasn't instituted communion yet. He's talking about offerings. And one of the ways that we know this is not the same thing is think about this. If you're bringing your gift, what he's talking about is when you bring your offering to God, saying you think God wants your sacrifices, he wants your offerings, do you know what he wants more than that? He wants you to be reconciled to your brother. That's what he's saying. But communion is not us bringing our offering to God, is it? It's the opposite. It's us coming and receiving the offering of Jesus and us receiving it and remembering it and identifying in it. And so that's the absolute best place that you could be as you're receiving grace and mercy. So we talk about a lot, the the requirement for communion is that you're clinging to Jesus. If you're clinging to Jesus right now in this moment, then you, you take communion. But here he's saying, listen, if this if you're going to go bring your offering, like you, you think that this is what God wants? God wants your money? God wants your sacrifices? No, he wants you to love your neighbor as yourself. So if, you have, if you've offended your brother, go first to them and be reconciled. And notice, he puts the onus on the one who has done the offending. 
And what does this mean? It means that sometimes you should be apologizing to someone who doesn't think you need to apologize to them. Because you know in your heart that you've brought offense. And so you might go to somebody and say, hey, I just, I'm sorry I said that. I feel like maybe I was being kind of dismissive or flippant. I didn't really hear you out. And I apologize for that. And what are you doing? You're thwarting any of that. You're, you're starving the anger that is in their heart. You're starving it in them and you're not letting it take root. You're, not letting, you're loving them well by confessing your sin. I mean, it should be noted though that we don't always know when we've offended somebody. And so if you've been offended, you also should go to your neighbor and say, hey, and let me, like just one way of doing that is just to go to them and say, I'm sure you didn't mean for this, um, but this thing that you said, just it, it kind of it struck me, and I, and I prayed about it, I thought about it, and I thought, yeah, I, I just want to let you know that that, that that hurt. Now, if the person says, like, oh, no, no, I totally meant that, and I'm glad it hurt, well, we have a different issue now, right? So that reconciliation is going to look a little different. But the kingdom way is that that's how we would function with one another. The kingdom way is not to pretend that we never offend anybody. The kingdom way here on earth, as long as we're broken, is to know that I'm going to say things that offend people. I mean, look, I'm obviously not immune to this. We've had people leave the church family who finally met with me and tell me, well, this all goes back to a sermon you preached three years ago. I'll say, man, if I had known that that offended you, I would, I would have gladly like, apologized first for offending you. That's not my design, but also to maybe to clarify anything that if, you, if there was a misunderstanding that I would want you to know, that's not my heart. And it makes me so sad when I see people that hang on to bitterness and anger and unforgiveness because the other person never knows that they offended them. We want to flood things with light. Don't feed anger. Don't let it take root. It's not, anger is not a harmless emotion. Jesus is not just giving advice on how to live an emotionally healthy life. He's saying with authority, it is sin to be angry with your brother and to have contempt toward them, to think less of them. And he does not make exceptions for people who say ridiculous things or do things that inconvenience you or vote the wrong way. The kingdom does not deal with differences that way. So we are called to be the children of the kingdom and be reconciled to one another. So these are not new laws, church. These are new ways of living. It's not about just merely avoiding bad actions and making sure that I don't say any of the wrong things or do any of the wrong things. But Jesus is after our hearts. And remember, it's not a bar that we're supposed to attain. It's a promise that is being fulfilled. Think, imagine a world where there's no anger. Imagine a world, even here on earth, the kingdom on earth, where we, where we flood it with light and we refuse to take, let it take root. Some of us just like to be angry. We're so comfortable with an angry response that we just, we want that. We don't want to flood it with light because we like that it's there. We need to confess and repent. We need to believe that the kingdom is better. 
He says, you have heard it said, do not murder. But what replaces it is not even to have anger in your heart. So you are free to have compassion for your neighbor, to seek reconciliation and peace. That's what he means when he says a new command I give to you, that you love one another. He's calling us to a greater love, a greater way of interacting with one another, a way of guarding one another's hearts and protecting one another. And so we don't feed into the anger of one another. We love them and we become peacemakers. We don't give in to contempt for others. We have compassion. You think about this. Yes, Jesus was angry a few times. It was with the religious. But on the crowds, the number one thing that it says about Jesus and how he looked on them was with compassion. Imagine if we had a culture that looked on the world with compassion and grieving over the brokenness of sin and internally we loved one another and we became peacemakers and encouraged one another to love and reconciliation, not towards anger and contentment. Contempt. Imagine that world. That's the kingdom. That's the righteousness of the kingdom, the one that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, reflecting how God loves us, who though his anger towards us and our sin was totally justified, completely justified. He did not let his anger burn against us forever, but rather sent his son so that we might be forgiven. That is the love of God. That is the love that we are to manifest. That is the love that the world can't explain or understand that points to the glory of our Father. Let us pursue it together. Let's pray. Father, Father God, we trust you in all things. We believe you. We know, God, that you, or that your desire for us is that we would love you with our whole heart, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, we pray that we would have, that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying. That even as I stumble my way through these very difficult passages, Lord, that, that Holy Spirit, you would speak to people's hearts, that you would confirm what is of you, and that you would cast aside anything that is not. But Lord, I pray that we would not be afraid, that we would not seek the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees that is found in creating our own law and defending ourselves and justifying ourselves, but that we would come to you that we would seek the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, that we would seek your kingdom, we'd seek the king. We would desire that. Lord, give us faith to desire that. Give us new hearts that would love that and want that. And then let us encourage one another in that pursuit. Lord, forgive us for our anger, Forgive us for our contempt, how we speak poorly of others because of how they act or how they think or out of fear, trying to defend ourselves and protect ourselves. God, forgive us for that. Let us lay that down. 
Let us choose the way of the kingdom. Let us be empowered by the Spirit to live in that way and let us build one another up in that kind of love. In Jesus' name, amen.